everyone. This is Cobain the Christian. Today we have again James Snap to continue talking with us about the text of the New Testament. Last time we had him talk about the long ending of Mark, and today we're going to be talking about the Pericopi Adulteri uh, in John chapter 8. Before we get into that, uh, let's start with an opening prayer. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings, and plant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down our carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee do we ascribe glory, together with thy Father who is from everlasting, and only good and life-creating spirit, both now and ever, to the ages of ages. Amen. So let's get up this slide. I I can't see you. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You right. See it? Yeah. Yes, I do. Excellent. Good. So oh, good morning, good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Uh, it's good to have you back. Um, uh, I'm 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 particularly excited. I have to admit, uh, to talk about the PA because uh, I know. Some people who um, are for Mark 16, uh, but are very skeptical, nevertheless, about the PA. Um, so uh, before we get into this slide, um, could you just introduce us to what is the issue at hand with the PA? Well, there are two issues. One issue is, was this originally part of the Gospel of John? And then the other issue is, if it's not part of the Gospel of John, is it an early enough tradition that it can be considered apostolic and authoritative? Uh, in the, uh, the Roman Council of Trent back in the 1500s, it, it was affirmed as canonical. So it's really not. So the second question is already answered for Roman Catholics because Trent has never been reversed. But, uh, but for the rest of for evangelicalism, uh, that question is still being debated. Uh, the first question is usually simply taken for granted among evangelicals, uh, but it's not the overwhelming case that it has been presented to be. Uh, Bruce Metzger, in his textual commentary uh, on the Greek New Testament, it's a, a very influential handbook, but he begins, his very first statement is, the evidence for the non-Yohanine origin of the of, of the adulteress is overwhelming. And so you'll find, because Metzger has been so influential and, and hoard before him, uh, because he's been so influential, that, that is the default approach that you'll usually find at uh, seminaries all around America and think, in Europe think... even more so. I think Dan Wallace calls it his favorite passage, which is not in the Bible. Yes, yes. Uh, at, at my blog, I have a blog post, if you use the search for it, look for it, uh, a post called My Favorite Passage About Adulterous that, that's in the Bible. So you can use those to compare and contrast. So what do we have? What, what, what's the significance of what we're looking at right here? Well, usually they'll say that the uh, Pericope Adulterae uh, John 7:53 through 8:11 is missing in many manuscripts, and people might want to see if, if you could maybe enlarge the slide a bit 
can see exactly what manuscripts they're talking about. Uh, it's not unlike the case in Mark 16, 9 through 20. It's not just two, two or three. Uh, we're talking about 267 manuscripts total. And many of them on the, on the first line are very early manuscripts. You have Papyrus 66, Papyrus 75, Papyrus 39, maybe. You've got to do a codicological analysis to really build up the, that case. Uh, Codex A is not in it, but we don't have the, the pages from Codex A there. Likewise for Codex C. Um, and A and C, if you calculate how much text was on the page, there's, there's not enough room. For, so I'm very comfortable saying that A and C did not have them. Uh, also Codex B, Codex L, Codex N, Codex T is another Egyptian manuscript. Uh, w, X, Y, and as you see, these are very many manuscripts. You can just check that top line. And if that top line has a reading, uh, it's very unlikely that any of the others would matter. But they're brought up in this case because they don't include uh, the, the passage in, in John. Now, uh, about about eighty of those of those manuscripts are copies of a commentary gospel. In other words, it's it's a katina or a, a commentary. Excuse me, uh, it's a commentary, which th they all basically go back to the same source. So those tend to be or should be boiled down, but they're usually not when because Metzger usually says. Manuscripts must be weighed, not just counted, which is a good axiom in textual criticism. But very rarely have I ever seen them actually being counted, being being weighed when it comes when, when they have a, a sizable group of manuscripts in favor of the reading that Mexico wants to adopt. But uh, that that's what you can look at as. Greek manuscripts supporting the mission of, of John 753 through 811. Uh, the most important ones are here on the top row. Uh, Codex, Codex uh, Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus are right there. And back in 1881, Hort said when Vaticanus and Sinaiticus agree, we should generally uh, take them as the best manuscripts and we can pretty much push everything else aside. Now, of course, Hort did not have the papyri to work with, but his approach has been extremely in influential. But uh, if Vaticanus and Sinaiticus had had the Pericope adulterate, uh, none of these would really be decisive. So are these uh, concentrated in the Alexandrian manuscript family, like Mark, uh, like the omission of Mark 16 was, at least in non-Greek texts we talked about with Mark 16, but is there, is there a, um, is the omission uh, distributed across manuscript families or is it concentrated in just, in just one of them? It's especially in the Alexandrian. You'd have to go through it in a little bit more detail with this than I have with this, with this slide. To a, see see the amount of distribution, but but uh, at least at least one commentary writer did not have it, and then of course after after him, all all copies all copies of his commentary 
also did not have it. Well, with the commentary, he had a text beside it, and they were copied together. Uh, sometimes in those commentaries, you have a little bit of text, a little bit of commentary, a little bit of text, a little bit of commentary, all the way, all the way through. Other times, it's off to the side. But uh, but 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 you can see how with a commentary, with the, a commentator copying a uh, a commenting on a text, all copies of his text would, would tend to reflect the same text that he used. And so there are about 80 of those that are in this group. But yes, uh, regarding the Alexandrian text, it, very heavily, and that, that has an important, that's an important factor in what I will say later. Codex uh, A, excuse me, Codex Aleph, Aleph, and, and B, and P75, and P66, and T are Egyptian. W was found in Egypt. Uh, and um, they, so yes, the early ones are especially uh, from Egypt. Later on, it varies. You could almost flip a coin. Now, do any of these, have, sorry, do, do any of these have um, uh, the PA in the Gospel of Luke? Because I've, I've heard something about the PA being included in some manuscripts of Luke. Yes, Family 13. Um, for information about Family 13, uh, you can probably go to the uh, Encyclopedia of New Testament Textual Criticism and get an idea of, of, of uh, family, family 13. Uh, it's not a, a large group of manuscripts, but it is a discernible cluster. In a some Bible footnotes, you'll have things like it's the, those manuscripts are brought up. Using the Christian Standard Bible here, I have the, the, the note says other manuscripts include all or some of the passage after John 736, 744, 752, that, that's where it usually is, uh, 2125, that's at the very end, or Luke 2138. So, so yes, yes, there's a small group called Family 13 in which the members of that family not only have unusual readings throughout the Gospels, but they also have this feature of having the Procopia Adultery uh, there in Luke. That's, that's the manuscripts for, omit, for omission. And as you can see, it's a much larger group than we were dealing with with the Mark 16 and 20. Right, right. So uh, next slide. Sure. So we have the ones that support uh, the PA yeah. here. Yeah, these are, well, what, what takes more than one slide to put them all on, on the screen, but these are the Greek manuscripts that support the inclusion of John 53, 8 through 11. Uh, you can go ahead and bring, bring that up a little bit. Can we go back to the, the first one for inclusion? Sure. Uh, you see here, um, can you enlarge up a bit? Yeah. yeah. There you go. Good, good. Um, these are also uh, manuscripts, and these are the ones for inclusion. Now, this doesn't mean they all have it in the same place, but it just means it's it's there. A Greek manuscript that support the inclusion of John 7, 53, 8, 11, include Codex D, 
Codex D is significant because it's Western. Uh, the Western text was not used much in Greek after, after the 500s, but it is uh, in, in Codex D, and Codex D is then thought to be an echo of something earlier. Uh, the thing is, it's difficult to say when it's echoing something earlier and when it's just doing its own thing. So Codex D is an important representative of the Western text, a text form that goes back to the, the 200s and possibly, and I would say the, the 100s, but uh, Codex D includes John 753 through 811. Uh, so does Codex e, e, Codex F, H, K, M, S, U, V, uh, G, L, well, well, actually with L and Delta, it's kind of a special case. But something I want to point out that uh, it's not just a few that include it. It's also uh, about half the unschools and very many minuscules. Uh, this is not the whole, the whole page, uh, the whole representation. We can go on and look at the next page. These manuscripts also include uh, John 753 through 811. Uh, again, the numbers are not in, not, not nothing. Uh, it's definitely something. You have very, very many minuscules, most of which are medieval, but the me medieval manuscripts often re re echo an earlier exemplar or an earlier ancestor. Very, in very few cases, you have a father or mother daughter relationship among the manuscripts. Some, sometimes you do, but usually you do not. Christoph Lake's observation about having found uh, orphan manuscripts on Mount Athos is generally true across the board. Not so you're saying you're saying that that most of these manuscripts are uh, they count as independent textual witnesses. They're not interdependent among each other. Most of them would be Byzantine, but uh, Hort's theory that the Byzantine text would, can be clustered together, uh, that, that generally has been considered in subsequent Hort an oversimplification. Um, if we were to cluster everything together, you wouldn't see in your textual apparatus the symbol for Byzantine, you would see a bunch, a bunch of numbers like, like these. But the but since it's so easy, since that, that would make an, a very enormous textual apparatus, uh, usually for convenience, people do uh, cluster them together and just say the Byzantine text. And that's why you see the word biz or the letter in, in Gothic or fracture uh, M or K, or K coinine. Uh, instead of seeing all these numbers. So that's, that's not quite the end. So would you say um, uh, Byzantine text, that, that's a bit of an unfortunate term, or do you think that's still appropriate? Well, it describes the text appropriately, but it's important to keep in mind that when we say Byzantine, when we say Alexandrian, when we say Western, we're talking about where the text types dominated, where each form of the text tend to be used the most. That's not to say where it originated. 
um, Hort and Lake even proposed that even though it's the Byzantine text, it's really was earlier in, in Syria, in Antioch. And so the, the, the term Byzantine, sometimes it, it also depends on which part of the text you're talking about. For, for instance, in the, the uh, general epistles, um, they talk about the Byzantine text being, being later. And but the things that are say, said about that don't necessarily apply to the Byzantine text in the Gospels. So really, if you go into the weeds a bit, you have to make this, this, this distinction between the individual genres as well as well as the parts of the manuscripts. Right, because these oh, are yes. these these are transmitted as, as subsidiary collections, not always as a complete New Testament. Yeah. yeah yes. In uh, some copies, you can have a a good representative of the Alexandrian text in one part, and the rest will be a Byzantine in, in character. But after you go through all these manuscripts that include John 753 through 811, it comes to just over 1,500. Now, you would think that people would, would, would know all the time as manuscripts are comp compiled or collected, uh, how many manuscripts we have, but that's not the case. The New King James Version was made in, in 1982, and still to this day, I believe, its footnote about John 753 through 811 says that there are over 900 manuscripts that include John 753 through 811. Well, they were just a little bit off by about 600 or so. They said it was over 900, but they could have said it was just over 1,500. Now, is that is that a, just a mistake in counting? Is it not current information? Is it sometimes uh, there's dispute about whether something is one manuscript or multiple manuscripts? Uh, in this case, I think it was simply of uh, the person not knowing much about the manuscripts of John, John 753 through 811 and using a what was not an considered uh how you put it it wasn't considered observed to say over 900 and so that's what it, it said but you right. could they could have been a lot more careful and used right, a right. much higher number okay we can continue There are also lectionaries of the P with the PA. Now, in in the lectionaries, you have the the Synexion and the Minologion, and the, the Minologion was the the set feasts or, or days. Uh, the Synexion began lectionary on Easter, and so on the calendar, the, the days would vary. But Easter was the same time every year, and so they would put the first part, the Synaxarion, uh, it would go continuously from Easter, but it would vary each year, usually. And then in the Minologion, you have the feast days, which were set to particular days. And in the, in the, um, some, some days were more important than others. 
the feast for Pentecost was celebrated very, very, very early in the church. You see it being celebrated in Acts chapter, chapter 2, which you can't get much earlier in church history than, than that. But uh, the other days were especially, especially, especially sacred, uh, especially uh, just because you sort of a, a level higher than the others, like uh, Easter time and the Ascension Day, uh, other days. But the lectionaries, uh, um, you can see that they're also, these don't count as Greek manuscripts of the Gospels text because in them the, the, the Gospels text is all chopped up in pieces, uh, not in sequential order. But, uh, but these are some, some, some are, are, well, all, Lectionaries that support the inclusion of the Pericope adultery. Now, some might just have verses eight through eleven of chapter eight, but they show that that the text they were taken from before they became a lectionary text included included John's John's account of the woman caught in in adultery. So, at what point in um, liturgical history, from what we can tell, does uh, do certain texts come to be consistently associated with certain feast days across the Christian world? Do we have the evidence to answer that question? Um, not in every case. Uh, the, the lectionaries were preceded by simple lection cycles, which that's a more intangible thing. And lection, a lection cycle might, might be unique in one locale. And then you go 100 miles away, and there's a very different lecture cycle going on. So the early feast days were are a good way to, to point point to a point to a certain passage being used. Um, for instance, in the writings of Egeria, uh, the pilgrim, she mentions our, our, what was being celebrated when, and you can look look in a, uh, I think the writings of a. Uh, a man named Best, I think. Uh, no, or maybe it's old. Uh, uh, his his name he's he not this old, but his name is old. Uh, uh, the, he has a, a record of uh, where early liturgies arose, but that again it varies from place to place. Does gotcha. that answer your question, or do you want? Yeah, no, no, it does. It does. Yeah. Um, so, uh, next slide. Sure. There. Right, is, is that coming up for you? Uh, not yet. Okay. Hold on. Uh, we should be seeing the old Latin capitula. Oh, I, I, I see where. Yeah, just gotta switch folders. There you go. Uh, what we're seeing here is an old Latin chapter summary. Now, an uh, interesting thing about the old Latin text is before Jerome came along, uh, it was every man for himself in Latin. Uh, I think Augustine and Jerome together, uh, one of them said, uh, whoever thinks they have a little bit of Competence can, had gone ahead and, and made copies 
And so there were almost as many Latin versions as there were copies. Now that's what they said. Uh, how true that is, is a matter of debate, but basically the, the Latin text had many variations and because it was varying so much, uh, that's why Pope Damasus in, in, in Rome uh, wanted to have Jerome st standardized the, the Latin text, which he did in the year 383. So when you have later copies of Old Latin, uh, they're later copies of Latin, but they're echoing a text that existed, existed earlier, probably before Jerome came along and standardized it. Well, in some copies, even though we might have a Latin text, they, the person that made the copies still, still preferred to have the older Latin uh, su supplements. You would, you would uh, conform your text to a degree, but you could also have the old supplements. And some people just like to do it the old fashioned way. And so they would bring in things, elements from the old Latin. But one of those elements was the way they would divide up the chapter and the way they would summarize it. And here we have an example of one of those systems of chapter summarization. It's not unusual. Uh, it's not always there, but, but it's not unusual to find uh, Latin copies that are preceded before the, the, before the text, you have the chapter summaries. If you look in the book of Kells, you'll see something like this. Well, here is a copy. It's a, a much later copy, uh, but inside this copy, you have that, that old Latin form of the chapter summaries. And this particular form of the old Latin chapter summaries is thought to be from the time of Cyprian, because, because the little, little correspondences that, that line up with Cyprian's text. Well, although the copy is later, the echo there is from about the time of Cyprian or a little bit later. Uh, at least that is the, the prevailing consensus. I have never seen a challenge. And in this chapter summary in Latin, it begins by mentioning when Jesus dismissed the adulteress and said he was the light of the world, which of course what, what refers to the story of the one called an adultery in the Gospel of John. Uh, that is where the, this chapter summary is from. And so we see that either at the time of Cyprian, which is around the 200s, or just slightly afterwards, uh, somebody was using the Gospel of John with the story of the adulterers in it, uh, in chapter 7, 53 through verse 11. Uh, so when people say, well, all those manuscripts are so late, no? Uh, how do you, would you explain the existence of the, the old Latin chapter summaries from the time of Cyprian or shortly thereafter in the 200s, because he, he died about the year 258. Um, if you're considering this to be at that time, um, how is that late? So there is an important piece of evidence for the inclusion of the PA in the Gospel of Mark at its usual place in the 200s. Now, the 200s is earlier than Codex Vaticanus and earlier than Codex Sinaiticus. It's not earlier than P75, 
P66 is a matter of debate. Uh, I think full comfort in assigning it to the one the 100s is is might be off. Uh, P66 has some elements in it that look more like it's from a later period, not not much later, but later. So, in terms of date, this is very very early, and as a representation of the text that was used in some place that was not Egypt, it's uh, it it's a competitor. We see the next slide. Here we have from the University of Cambridge, these images are theirs, uh, Codex Beza's text of the Pericope Adultery. And uh, just to uh, make things a little easier for the observer, I've inserted the uh, page, page uh, uh, verse numbers, uh, verse for verse. So if you go to Codex Beza, which again is considered to be a Western text, but an echo of an earlier copy, of course, all the copies are. Uh, but there you can see in Codex Beza, which DC Parker dates to about the year 400. Uh, I would consider a, a bit later, but uh, no matter how you slice it, this is an early manuscript. Bruce Bart Ehrman, I think, calls it one of our earliest. But there it is in Codex Beta. So it's not something that was just thrown in there in the Middle Ages. This is Codex L. Oh, sorry about that. Oh, okay. This is Codex L, and uh, Codex L is unusual because after John eight fifty two, you then you have John eight eleven. But in between, you have the, a big space. So it's not just a witness for the non-inclusion, but it also reflects the copyist's attempt to convey that there was more here in a manuscript that he recollected. It, it was not in his exemplar, but in the scribe's mind, he had seen somewhere a copy which included verses chapter, chapter 753 through 811. And he left this memorial space, well, just as the name of the term implies, as memorial space. So when you see Codex L listed, keep in mind that that's not just Codex L pointing in one direction. Codex L also points in the other direction, the opposite direction, as the scribe had a copy somewhere that he did not have access to at the point. At this point, he was not copying from that copy, but he remembered that copy. So in Codex L, the memorial space implies the copyist's recollection of John 753 through 811. So Codex L usually thought to be for about these 700s. But it's not the only copy that has memorial space for the Pericope Adultery. If you have any, any, any questions, uh, feel free to raise them as we go. Codex Delta also has memorial space between, well, you see, if you can enlarge, yeah, yeah, just a little bit. You see that the copyist has begun to write uh, chapter eight, verse 12, 
uh, right after 752. But then he stopped and left the space. Almost, almost the equivalent of a whole page. And then after that space, he begins to write chapter 8, verse 12 again on the next page. But scribes, at least, at least two scribes of important uncial manuscripts, uh, leave space. Now, it's not that the space is enough space to fit in uh, the percolate adulterate, but simply the leaving of a space was enough to convey what they were trying to convey. Yeah, this is one of the things that I think uh, is interesting, and it's not captured by um, simply listing off manuscripts which don't have the PA or which did, didn't have Mark, uh, Mark 16, is that you have other forms of evidence that the scribe in question was aware of the texts, which is a different kind of um, witness than, than you would uh, get the impression of if you just hear, oh, this, this, this manuscript doesn't include the PA or whatever. Yes, Codex Y could be added to the list of manuscripts that don't have the PA, but the marks in the margin that they have imply that an earlier ancestor that the scribe knew about uh, did, 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 did have it. So does the scribe, um, you know, if he's working with an ancestral text, he's aware that it has the PA, what leads him in your mind, obviously you can't get into his head, but what's a plausible reason why he would choose not to transcribe the PA into the text he's producing? Uh, because the scribe's ambition, or his assigned task, was simply to copy the text in front of him. Oh, right. So he's he's working with a manuscript which doesn't has it, doesn't have it, but he's aware of other manuscripts which do have it. Is what you're saying? Exactamente. Okay. But uh, here is Codex K. Uh, this is a, a, a magistral manuscript, and you can see there in, in the middle page uh, the, the story of the adulterous, but by this point uh, has a title of the, of the, of the adulterous or pertaining to the adulteress. Here again, I have added in the verse numbers to make it easier to follow along. And uh, Codex K is kind of related to to Codex P or Pi, sorry, Codex Pi. And that represents an early family in the Byzantine transmission stream. So, so it's not as if the uncials don't have it. Uh, important uncials do, do have it. About, about, it's about 50-50 when you consider the, that, that, that buffer zone where they have the memorial space or indications of other manuscripts. But a lot of misinformation has circulated about the, the manuscripts regarding this passage. Uh, you, uh, Daniel Wallace, in his Credo course, um, and apparently he's taught this at Dallas Theological Seminary for some time, he says to his listeners, you don't see it, and by it he means the story of the adulterers, in any fathers of the first millennium. Now, 
Bruce Metzger in his textual commentary said you don't see any Greek fathers, but Wallace just leaves out the word Greek and says you don't see any fathers for the first thousand years, uh, which is wrong. You can find it in Patron of Barcelona. You find it referred to in Apostolic Constitutions. Ambrose of Milan refers to it. Ambrosiaster refers to it. Jerome refers to it. We'll see, we'll see that shortly. Uh, Rufinus refers to it. Augustine not only refers to it, but Augustine proposes a, a theory, which I don't subscribe to, but his theory, he proposes that uh, some people in the church, so he's, he doesn't accuse the, the heretics of doing this, but he says that some people in the church, because they were afraid their wives would use this passage as a, a defense, took out the story of the woman caught in adultery. Um, I don't see why anybody would re remove those first two opening verses, uh, or first three opening verses, uh, which don't involve the adulterers. They, they say something else. But, but Augustine ha had this theory and vigorously defends the passage because of this. But also, so Julius, uh, Peter Christologus in Ravenna, Italy, uh, Leo the Great, uh, Codex Valdensis. Uh, Codex Valdensis is an interesting text because the people that, that made it around the year 546, now it's a big manuscript and it would take them a little, a little, a little bit earlier than that, but that's when they finish it. In Codex Valdensis, you have a Latin text, but uh, Victor of Capua was a bishop there and he came across what he thought might be a copy of Tatian's Diatessaron. Well, by the 500s, Tatian was considered a, a heretic. And so Victor is a little hesitant to really include the works of somebody that might be considered a, a heretic. And so he does the next best thing. He uses the Vulgate text, but in the arrangement, he uses his example that might be Tatian. So in, in Codex Fodensis, you have uh, Vic, Victor's Latin text, but you have the arrangement in the order of this other thing. And in the source document of Codex Fodensis, it includes the story of the woman caught in, in adultery. Now, it could have its own, its own history too. It's not necessarily, necessarily all reflecting patient, but it does include uh, the story of the woman called in adultery. He gives he gives the, the, the section numbers as he goes. Also, is, isn't there um aren't there some uh, passages in some ancient Christian writers which suggest that this was a story also found in a Hebrew gospel? Um, some some copies are echoing uh Eusebius, and Eusebius's statement is one that I give in, in my book. I think Eusebius is talking about a story that was in, in Papias's uh, five books on the sayings of, G, of, of Jesus. But the, uh, that is easily confused with, uh, I think, the, the uh, Gospel of the Hebrews, which he, Eusebius brings up now and then. There's, there's a, I think I'm, I'm one, of, one of the manuscripts, which is pretty late, but it refers to saying this is included in the Gospel of the Hebrews, 
but he might simply be trying to recollect what, what Eusebius had said. Okay. But it's also in the Prosperacling of Cobalt Deus of Carthage, Galatius, Gregory the Great, and Cassiodorus, and uh, probably late, later Latin writers that could be cited too, but most of those are just using the Vulgate, and so that would just be like saying Vulgate, 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 Vulgate over and over again. But, and but, uh, but clearly the thing to see is it is in lots of fathers of the first millennium. Going back to uh, Apostolic Constitutions, uh, Book 2, uh, Part 24, Patian, Ambrose, Jerome, uh, it, it's a lot of them. So now, are there any are there any fathers who discuss the passage but reject its uh, authenticity? I know of none. Okay. Well, Wallace also says, oh, "Let's spend a little more time with Wallace." Wallace says we have three magistral manuscripts. Uh, uh, that's unsealed manuscripts. Magistrals, the trendy way to refer to unsealed. But he says we have three magical manuscripts out of the 322 that we have that actually have this passage. That's it. Um, this claim is, is not true. Uh, this claim is false. Um, it probably should be retracted very openly. But uh, because we don't have 322 copies in Unseal of John, that's the number of Unseal copies that were in circulation, other that were known, were cataloged when 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 uh, Wallace was giving this lecture or giving this lesson. Out of the 322, uh, a lot of those have nothing to do with the Gospel of John because they, they don't contain it. The copies of from Acts or the Epistles or someplace else, or even Revelation. The the actual number of unsold copies of John is much smaller and copies of John chapter seven and eight is even small, smaller than that. So what Mitchell is doing here is like saying, oh, the, the Miami, the, the Miami Dolphins, they were never a, a good team because look, look at how many football, football games were, were, were played that year, which they didn't win. Well, sure, if you take the number of games that of football that were played, uh, they'll, they'll be much higher than the number of wins the Miami Dolphins had. But that's because the Miami Dolphins were not playing in, in that many games. They had like, like 17. So even if the Miami Dolphins would win all 17 games of theirs, it would still be a much smaller number than the total number of games of football being, being played. Uh, so Wallace is using a completely irre irrelevant number to try to make his case in 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 this way but it's if you know better if you know what he's talking about he's saying something that you really couldn't say if you wanted to be realistic but also that Wallace says that in some manuscripts it appears as a separate pericope at the end of all four gospels just tacked on at the very end and he never brings up the note that comes with it. So if you lean on Daniel Wallace and a lot of commentators have said the same sorts of very inaccurate things, if people are leaning on Dallas Theological Seminary as a, a serious source of information, 
um, then they will have these this sort of completely erroneous uh, claims. For instance, in a well, well I'll, I'll get to that a little bit later. But let's go on and look at Codex F. Uh, Codex F. That's a num number seven. Oh, oh okay. Well, okay. Well, wait. Let, let's do it later. Uh, let's go through these claims first. Uh, in in regarding the early early evidence, uh, Wallace was saying that nobody talks about it until the first millennium. Until the first millennium is over. Uh, here's patient in Barcelona. He's from about the same time period when Codex Sinaiticus was made. Uh, he is writing and he says this, Oh, novations, why do you delay to ask an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, to mean life for life? Why do you wait to, re to renew once more the practice of circumcision on the Sabbath? Kill the thief, stone the patient, choose not to read in the gospel that the Lord spared even the adulteress who confessed when none had condemned her, and so forth, that he absolved the sinner who washed through tears, that he delivered Rahab at Jericho. Among the examples the patient gives to his listeners is the story of the one caught in an adultery. So obviously the passage is known in patient's time in his particular locale. And that's in southern Spain. Also Ambrose in Milan, also in the, the, the 300s, is writing to Studius Epistle 25 and says, and, and goes through the story. I just have a little bit of it here. But in his comments, which, which can be found online without, without difficulty, he says, just look for Ambrose Epistle 25, and after a few hits, it'll probably come up. He says, the Jews apprehended an adulteress and brought her to the Savior. The Lord Jesus stooped down and rode upon the earth and says, let him that is without sin cast a stone at her. And then, and this, this is what you see on your screen. And at the close, he says, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. So Ambrose is clearly familiar with the story. He does not have any doubt about it as he uses it in his, in his teachings there at, at Milan. Now Milan was, a, it is an important city today, but it was also an important city in Ambrose's time. And so that's a, a major center. Ambrose is using a Latin text, but he seems to be very confident in his uses of it. He can use it again in uh, Ephesus 25, also in Ephesus 26. He says, very famous is the acquittal of the woman who in the gospel according to John was brought to Christ accused of adultery. So here we see the specificity that Ambrose uses. Uh, some, 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 some folks will say, well, well, it's mentioned, but they don't say that they're using it from John. It's just floating around out there, and they use it because it's helpful from some source. But Ambrose specifically says it's in John. And he describes it, so there's no question about what he's using. They won't accuse of adultery again. And this is kind of repeating what he was in his other letter. But you can go into his letters and see he uses it very extensively. Now, Jerome, about the year 383, uh, in, uh, and uh, writes in his preface to the, to the Gospels, this is the preface that he wrote to, to Damasus 
before the four gospels. He said he made this re re revision by a comparison of the Greek manuscripts. Only early ones have been used. Now, Jerome himself was born around the year 340. So you would reckon that if anything is considered ancient by Jerome, it's probably older than Jerome himself. So this would refer to copies that are from 340 or earlier. If Jerome, uh, the, probably the best scholar of his time and his, his day, if he is accurately assessing the date of his manuscripts, he says, I've only used early ones, early Greek manuscripts. To avoid any great divergences from Latin, which we are accustomed to read, I've used my pen with some restraint, and while I have corrected only such passages as seem to convey a different meaning, I've allowed the rest to remain as they are. So there he uses these terms to describe what he's used as the basis for his work on, on, on the Vulgate, early Greek manuscripts. Also in a later writing of Jerome, and by later, I mean not as early as the Vulgate, all of Jerome's writings are, are relatively early, but around the year 417, he was writing a, a, a refutation of the Pelagians. And in that work, Jerome says, in the gospel according to John, again, notice the specificity here. In the gospel according to John, there is found in many of the Greek, as well as Latin copies, the story of the adulteress who was accused before the Lord. So he is there referring to the Percipe adultery. He is referring to John 7:53 through 8:11, and he says it's in many copies of John in Greek as well as Latin. Now, Jerome doesn't say how many he means when he says many. But if he means more than nine, then we have, in Jerome's awareness, as many early copies as we have copies that don't, don't have it. So the idea of this being overwhelming uh, doesn't really take into account of what, what Jerome has said, what, what Patient has said, or what Ambrose has said. In many of the Greek copies, as well as Latin, we find this account. Now, of course, that also means that in at least some copies, Jerome had, had it was not there. Otherwise, Jerome would simply say it's in all, all of them. He doesn't say in all, in all of them, but he does say it's in many of the Greek copies. So, so that is definitely something that has a lot of weight. Does Jerome ever, um, what were his standards for uh, differentiating among Greek manuscripts? Is he just counting them or is he, does he have a way of assessing which manuscript he wants to trust and which manuscript he considers less credible? Off the top of my head, I think that Jerome thought, uh, maybe, maybe this was just regarding the Septuagint copies, but there, there were certain lines or transcription streams that he thought were there. Whether they were really there or not is an open question, but he thought that you could divide some into copies from uh, Hesychian copies or copies made by Hesychius, and, and who that was is a good question. Uh, some copies that were made by, by Lucian, 
and some copies that were came out from Jerome, which ones were he considered more authoritative, more weighty, uh, better? Uh, you can simply try to discern from considering what what readings he adopted. But certainly in the copies that he had, he considered the ones with the story of the adulteress to be good copies uh, because that's what he used. Right, right. Uh, so Codex uh, F, do you want to bring up? Okay. Uh, we, we saw Codex F in the, in the list before. I just want to show the, the slide just briefly to say, you see it here. Yes, Codex F is a copy that has not been treated well. But uh, here on this page, you can see uh, at the top left corner, uh, verses, verse 10 and, and 11, though there. Hello, Keith, yeah. Uh, but there you see, uh, this is one of the copies which uh, when, when Dan Wallace has the claim about we have only three unsure copies with this passage. Uh, no, we don't. We also have unsure E, G, H, K, M, U, S, G, Omega, O, 4, 7, and O, 2, 3, 3 that support the passage. Some, some might only have it in part because of damage. But when the manuscript was in pristine condition, uh, you see it there in Codex F. So the, the numbers game is partly about preferring the Alexandrian early copies and just setting the Byzantine aside. Uh, we can, can continue with the, the next slide. And uh, here you see a medieval copy. This was out of the University of Chicago. And you can see these think elements in the text that you see in red. Uh, here you see the title for the story of the woman culture and adultery, the, the, the adulteress. Uh, they're down in the, in the lower margin. But, uh, but here this sign that you see in red before the story starts at, at the beginning of 753 or rather at the end of 752 is important. Uh, this symbol occurs in very many copies. What does it mean? Well, it means jump ahead. In the early way, the the, the Feast of Pentecost was presented each year after year. It began, the reading for Pentecost begins at John 7.37. But when it gets to the end of 752, there's a sign that says jump ahead. And if you jump ahead, you reach the resume symbol. And that's what you see in the second second slide, the second picture there. Uh, there at the end of, of John 8.11, you have the symbol where it's written out and it says resume. Now, oftentimes these are abbreviated I don't think Dan Wallace really ha has a, a firm grasp of the evidence because in a, in a manuscript that he describes at the uh, Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts when he's describing this mark that's, that's there after John 752, 
he describes the letters as uh, P-N. Uh, he's reading them backwards, and he's also get, getting one of the letters wrong. It's not P-N that he is referring to. It's this, this symbol here uh, starts with upsilon pi, which stands for the Greek word hy hyperbole, uh, hy hyperbole, which means jump ahead. Uh, and this, I think, is key to under understanding why the manuscript is missing in so many manuscripts. In an ancestor of them all, uh, these symbols, I believe, were in an early, very early copy. Uh, when Pentecost, remember Pentecost is celebrated in Acts 2. So when you come to consider when Pentecost was celebrated, it was celebrated very, very early. It was probably the, the first feast, uh, one of the very, very first feasts. Well, obviously Easter is in there too, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But the early feast days were, were being observed long before any actual lectionaries were made. They were simple, simple lection cycles, which were, weren't written down, but everybody knew what they were. And so you have these two symbols jump from here and then at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 12, resume here. Well, with these two symbols in the text, the elector would know to jump from this point to here. So that you only have in the Pentecost lection things that pertain directly to Jesus and, the, the, and to the theme of Jesus being uh, saying, saying about how the spirit, spirit will come and then Jesus being rejected. And then you jump to where he says, I am the light of the world, and conclude the lection on that note. But to, those were instructions for the lector. And these were used very often. We can look and see them again in 1429. We see asterisk being used to, to convey the same thing. In, in uh, manuscript 1429. You, you can, yeah, there we go. Four twenty-nine is an interesting uh, manuscript. It, it was uh, missing for a while. It was basically stolen during World War I, and it turned up fairly recently in, in an auction, and the Museum of the Bible uh, pur purchased it. But then somebody noticed that, hey, that looks like one of our manuscripts or one of the manuscripts from the monastery that it came from. And so since then, it has been returned by the Museum of the Bible to its, its monastery. But you can see in this copy, which is a very interesting copy, I wish the whole thing was online, but at least these two pages were online and it shows here the story of the woman caught in adultery in John of the usual spot. But we see if you zoom in a little bit, yeah, zoom, zoom in on that uh, on, on that jump symbol. Uh, this is the symbol that means jump ahead. These asterisks on the side are sometimes characterized as if they represent scrambled out as if somebody saying, oh, I don't know if this really belongs to you or not. But in real life, 
these are meant to say when you're reading this section for Pentecost, don't read this part. Jump ahead and then resume over here. And there we see the resume symbol. And here's chapter chapter 8, verse 12, where, where, where it picks up at the end of the lecture. So a lot of these asterisks are simply there to instruct the, the lector how to read the, what he's supposed to read on Pentecost Day while not reading what he's supposed to read for another day, because the, the, this passage was used on, on another day. So simply to keep the Pentecost lection straight, you jump from here to here. And that is conveyed very clearly in manuscript 1429. And you can go through manuscript after manuscript where you see uh, similar marks. And it goes back quite early. You can also see it in Codex M. In Codex M, even though the ink has uh, faded a little bit, you can see, yeah, if you zoom in enough, yeah, very good. Uh, at the beginning of John 7.53, there again, there's an asterisk here, but it's not just an asterisk, it's an asterisk with a jump symbol. It says jump ahead. And so once you've jumped ahead, then you can see beside John 8.12 or very nearby, there's another asterisk which says resume here. That's the the Akkiao. Um, very clear. And uh, John John eight eleven. Uh, that, that's what uh, that's why I put this uh, red line beside the story of the woman caught in adultery. So there's Codex M. You can see these these marks. Jump ahead here. Resume here were very early. And I think that that explains the whole thing, that all that you need to do is have a copy with these marks in it very, very early, showing the lector where to begin, or what, where does, who's using a form of the, the what, what later on became the, the lecture cycle for Pentecost. Begin at 737, read ahead to John 7, 52, but then jump ahead and conclude with chapter eight, verse 12. Now, as long as it's recollected that these marks are for the lector, uh, no problem. But if you have a professional copyist, who's not necessarily a Christian, but is simply a qualified copyist, a uh, very disciplined copyist in Egypt, making a copy of John in the second century. And he sees, he sees these marks, but he doesn't know that they're for the lecture. He thinks they're for him. And so when he comes to the Gospel of John and he's writing it out, he's trying to make a very good copy. And when he sees this mark that says, jump ahead, guess what he does? He jumps ahead. And when he sees the market says resume, that's what he does. He resumes there. And just like that, poof, goes the story of the adulteress. Would this be the only place in John's gospel where it was marked in this way? If you look at copies that were made for, for use in the church, 
Uh, most definitely not. But the marks go back to so early that that uh, in in Egypt, we if you have this lecture cycle there, Pentecost would be one of the first passages that would be reserved for church use. So there wouldn't be very many that would have these marks. Oh, I see. So this is the this is you're suggesting the um, earliest stage of the like one of the first passages to be fixed in association with a particular feast. Yes, I would say that the Pentecost lection and and what what those the high feast days, those were the first feast days to they receive marking in, in the lections. We see uh, uh, I think uh, Cyril Alexander refers to some feast days. Uh, and the other references, I, I mentioned Egeria as one, who mentioned which days were being observed, especially uh, important. And like I said, in the early church, there weren't very many days that were as important as Pentecost. So it would be one of the earliest feast days to be fixed in the election cycle. The, the mm -hmm. early election cycle would have Pentecost as one of the days to be observed, uh, Easter as as a, few, a day to be observed. Uh, later on, Christmas as a day to be observed, uh, and um, it's not coming to me. But but the number of early feast days was limited, and so in, in early copies, uh, Pentecost would be one of the first days. the The idea is that in the early election cycle in an early copy, if these marks were there, uh, this explains the, the loss of John 753, a copyist, a very disciplined copyist who thought he was following instructions, came to his copy, his, 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 his exemplar, and it had marked these marks in. And he simply said, those marks are meant for him. The copyist, whereas right, actually right. They, they were meant for the lecture, but with that quirk and how he understood his his master copy, uh, just like that, the passage can go poof. Also, so are you, in, is, is this is this your hypothesis? Is this original to you, or 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 um, is this uh, something that was developed by? earlier manuscript scholars, just out of curiosity? Um, back in, I, I think it was, I forget what year it was. If you go to my blog, I, uh, I have a report about it. But a while back, uh, some scholars met in Wake Forest, George, in Wake Forest, in, out, out, out east, to discuss the Pericopay adultery. Uh, most of the ones that were invited um, to, to get, actually give presentations give presentations against the story of the adultery. But uh, Maurice Robinson uh, gave a vigorous uh, presentation in favor of it. And as I sat there, I was thinking that it was like he was saying things that I was thinking. And the things that he said very much corresponded with my own research. 
yeah, by, yeah. The end, by the end of his presentation, all of the speakers affirmed that the story of the woman caught in adultery should be preached. There wasn't one that that, that dissented. Wow. But, uh, but uh, so Maurice Robinson really had this idea before I did. And when was this? I don't this? know if his uh, idea of how it happened is exactly the same as mine. Um, uh, but uh, but his presentation presented a, a very similar scenario. That it was simply because of this glitch in early copy or copies that is the source of the non-inclusion of John 753 through 811. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Okay, this is manuscript 1333. Uh, now, this is a manuscript that I think has been misrepresented uh, in this regard, as if John 753-811 was just floating around somewhere. And the floating anecdote uh, hypothesis is what Metzger seems to advocate in this textual commentary. It's also very much what Daniel Wallace is, is advocating, but uh, really that, that uh, theory is not feasible. You can see how people get the impression that it is if all they do is, is read James White's, uh, or listen to James White's lectures, and I listened to Dan, Dan Wallace's lectures. I have put up online a, a brief explanation of why that is really not realistic. Uh, and feel free to, to uh, put up a link maybe to where that, that video lecture is. But this is 1333, which is, which is used in the case that people say, well, of course, John, John, John's story about the woman caught in adultery was just floating around out there somewhere because we see it in so many different locations. Like I said, the, the uh, Holman, uh, what used to be Holman, uh, the, the Christian Standard Bible the note just simply says, sometimes it's after John 7, 736, sometimes after John 734, sometimes after John 732, sometimes at the end of the book, sometimes it's there in Luke. And if that's all you've got to go on, then this, then that tends to look feasible, that it was just floating around and sometimes they put it here, sometimes they put it there. But in real life, when you see it here, which occurs between Luke and John, um, we can look into the details and see what has happened in this manuscript, 1333 which is misrepresented, I think, by, by both uh, James White and, and by Dan Wallace. Uh, feel free to double, double check on that. I'm going on, on in, 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 in here. But in 1333, we don't have all of John 8, all of John 753 through 811. We only have John 83 through 11, and that's a different story because John 83 through 11, and again, this has to do with the localized variations in in the lecture cycle that was used as it was used in medieval manuscripts. I'm out. When you look at the actual document, you can see what has happened in 1333. 
I don't know if Dan Wallace and James White have ever actually looked at this manuscript, but it's been out there for a while. At the very top of its page, it says, this reading is for the eighth day of the month. I think that says October. For St. Pelagia. Well, St. Pelagia was the saint who in the Minologion, the second part of the lectionary, uh, that's who was to be honored on that particular day. And she was honored with this reading. Uh, St. Pelagia's story uh, is fascinating. Uh, in the days, I think, of a bishop named, named Nanus. Uh, she was a famous actress and she was said to be notorious for her licen licen licentiousness. And, and that when she came by the, the church where Nanus was giving his, his sermon, and I, I might not be recalling every detail of the story correctly, but feel free to double check in the comments. But the idea is that she came by and, and Nanus stared at her intently. And, and then he continued to preach. And, 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 and after the, the sermon, uh, uh, his, his followers came and said, Oh, Nanus, you chased Nanus. Example, example voice, why did you look that way at that actress? And Nana said, well, you see, my son, I was not looking at her to, to lust at, at her. I was looking at her as I was thinking, think about how much time she had to spend getting herself ready to present herself in that way to complete strangers that she does not even know. And here we are. How many of us would have spent that much time? I mean, did you see what she was weighing at message taking hours? Did you see that that much effort from an unbeliever for for a bad cause? How many of us for a good cause invest that much effort and that much time? Do we invest ourselves in clothing ourselves in prayer and putting on Christ each morning and, and so forth? Well, yeah. well, 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 Pelagia herself was uh, her name was called, called Ma Margaret. Um, she was later on convicted by by what ha what happened, and she came to to the bishop later and re repented and told him, "I repent. I'm sorry for all this trouble that I've caused." And he encouraged her to make progress in the faith. And she ended up becoming a, a steward at a garden in Jerusalem. And when and but but nobody knew who it was because she kept herself so modest to that point with with thick layers layers of clothes. Uh, people thought this was a man. And it wasn't until after she had died that when as they were preparing the body that they, had, they said, "Uh, who's this woman?" And Word got back to people that had known Bishop, not the bishop, and the story came down. Oh yes, this was the woman who used to be this actress, but she repented, and became a steward in the garden, uh, all her days, uh, serving serving the, the church, and it was used as an example to remind people: No, you may be as lascivious as this actress was, but even she was convicted by the spirit and came to repent. 
So you can too. Well, this was the lecture that was used on that day of the year uh, it, to remember uh, St. Pelagius. Or Saint, yeah, St. Pelagia. And initially when 1333 was made, it did not have this story in the book of John. But because the story was in, in the Melogion, it was th this page of the manuscript, which was initially blank, was used by someone else who owned the manuscript and didn't want the story to be left out. And so they put it in here, but you can plainly see, it says there on the second line of the first column, from the Gospel of John, and well, well, from according to John, which is another way to say it. That's the kind of, of rubric that you would see in the lectionaries themselves. So it wasn't just floating around somewhere at random. It was definitely from a lectionary that was used to honor, and from a lection that was used to honor the woman Pelagia. So it should not be misused. Likewise, the note in, in Family One should not be misused. Um, every time Family One's location of the Turkey adultery is mentioned in John 21-25, this note should come up too, but you never see Dan Wallace mention it. I don't think I've ever seen James White mention it. He's welcome to mention it in the future. But in Family One, before the Turkey adultery at the end of John, you have this little note, and the note says, this is the chapter about the adulterers, the chapter of the Kephalea. The, uh, the uh, Kephaleon would be the, the chapter. The, the, they would number and name the chapters differently than we do today. But the chapter about the adulterers, in the gospel according to John, this does not appear in the majority of copies, nor is it commented upon by the divine fathers whose interpretations. Oh, can you excuse me for just a moment? Oh, Sarah? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm getting a call. Can, can you? Yeah, yeah. Possibly. Okay, I'm, I'm, I apologize. I, I had to take, take a call. But, uh, I think we were talking about the F1 note in, mm -hmm. in manuscripts one and 1582. Now these are chief representatives of a whole little cluster of manuscripts called family one. But the note is what I want you to see because this note is very seldom brought up when it comes to the movement from where John is usually found to these manuscripts that have it at the end of John says this doesn't often appear because our our favorite commentators, John Chrysostom, uh, our Chrysostom, and Cyril of Alexandria, our Theodore Maptrustia, uh, don't comment upon it. For this reason, it was not kept in the place where it was found in a few copies at the beginning of the 86th chapter, the, which is a reference to the 86th Eusebian section following search and see that a prophet does not arise out of, out of Galilee. So when, when, when it's seen at the end of John, the reason for that, according to this note, is because they've moved it. It has been moved from where it has been, been previously found. So it's not randomly floating out there like a butterfly somewhere. It was previously in John 7, after 752, which is what's being 
quoted here, and it has been moved from that position and transplanted to the end of John. Um, if this note is not pointed out and you just see the see that it's there at the end of John, you'll you'll get a different impression than when you see the note that explains why it was transplanted transplanted from point A after 752 to point B after John 1, after John 21, 25. So for those little footnotes that say sometimes it's found at the end of John, that is certainly true, but that's not the whole story. If you look at family one and see the note in, in manuscripts one and 1582, you will see this note which gives a much different impression. It wasn't floating around. It was there in John before it was moved to the end of John. We also have other notes about the story of the woman caught in, in adultery. Uh, in Codex Lambda, and this is in a whole little group, little, another little cluster. Uh, this, this note is found in Codex Lambda. Uh, manuscript 20, uh, 262, 1187, 1282, and 1424, which again is, is, is uh, another cluster representative. But the note says the obelized section, uh, you see here, the obelized section is not in some copies, it's not in Apollinarius's copies. But in the, in, I think the note says, I can't quite see all of the note. Uh, can you maybe shrink it down? Shrink it down a little bit. Uh, could you, you shrink it? Re reduce the size. Yes. Is is yeah, that as small this, as it goes? Yeah. This is this is as far as it goes. Okay. Can you read this whole thing for me? Just because the way I was computers are set up, I can't see all of it. I yeah, want to make and, sure I get it right. Uh, a note found in Codex Lambda 20, 262, 1187, 1282, and 1424. The obelized section is not in some copies or in Apollinarius's. Uh, in the old ones, it is all there. This pericope is also recollected by all the apostles, CF Apostolic Constitutions 224, which affirms that it is for the edification of the church. Thank you. Uh, this Feature in 1187 is also found in these other manuscripts. But here we see that that uh, when they say, so it, it is obelized, but that's because the note writer, the annotator, uh, says this about it. And some, sometimes the, these notes are not mentioned, and they just say that these obli are just there to draw doubt upon the passage. But the note tells a different story. It says, while this is not in some copies, uh, and it could just as easily say it's not in many copies, it's not in Apollinarius' copies, but in the old ones, it is all there. This pericope is also recollected in Apostolic Constitutions. And, and here the reference to being recollected by the apostles in some forms of the note, it will say all the apostles. But the note says 
the has apostolic confirmation. And that's a reference to the book of apostolic constitutions from about the year 380. So again, fourth century co copies um, were being used to make apostolic con constitutions. And the annotator believes that that affirms it's for the edification of the church. So there the claim is made very, very much in, in favor of using this passage as scripture. Uh, I think, again, you see um, kind of the same situation that we see in Jerome, which is that those who had access to these most ancient manuscripts, those who were able to sift through them at the time, seem to have concluded that the quality manuscripts indicated that it was an authentic part of the gospel. Well, you, can, you can see that, that that is what they thought. Now, is apostolic constitutions really by the apostles? Uh, no, it's not. But it reflects an early tradition. Uh, apostolic constitutions itself, uh, in this respect, echoes the Syriac uh, didascalia, or didascalia, and that's even earlier. So that's what we find in 1187 and also in 1424. So all in all, I think that in, in terms of what the notes say about this passage and how it was used in the church as as in in the text of John, it's inside the lection for Pentecost, but it was skipped because thematically it's it's different from what they wanted to focus on on, on Pentecost. But because of that little glitch and how it was copied, or how it, how, how it wasn't copied, rather. Um, here we have, I think, uh, I think this will be the last slide, Codex E of the Gospels, uh, Codex E 07. So it's, uh, you, you wouldn't think from the apparatus of Nestle Allen that this is a very important manuscript, but it's a pretty good copy of the Byzantine text. And here in John, we once again see this early, and that's just reflecting a much earlier usage in, in its copies, it, its line of descent. You see the jump ahead, and you see the res resume here symbols, and I think it's those that are the source of the whole problem. When those were used in a copy that was used in, in Egypt, I think somebody simply misunderstood them as being for him when he was a copyist, where actually they were meant for the lecturer. But by paying attention to his, his instructions, or what he thought were his instructions, he dutifully did what he thought he was being told to do. And that's why the passage has gone missing in the early Alexandrian text line. When we look in the Byzantine text, in copies like Codex N, they are also influenced by this same line that was, was missing the passage. But we have it abundantly attested both in Latin and in Greek, just like Jerome said. Okay, any, any questions? And uh, for more information about this, 
uh, and many things that I haven't covered uh, that we just covered uh, briefly. I do, I do have uh, two books available for reading on the Kindle, uh, the Kindle app. Uh, you can get my book on Mark 16, 9 to 20, and my book on John 7:53 through 8:11 at Amazon for 99 cents. Yeah, I would and I would commend those to uh, to anyone has, who's interested in this yeah, issue. It has a lot. It has a lot more details. Um, I could. I don't mean to to bore you with uh, going down the lists, but. You could say that uh, Cobatinus in Latin has it, Cobiensis has it, but, uh, and you can just keep on going. Also, uh, what Metzger said in his textual commentary about no Greek commentator commenting on it, Metzger does not seem to have been aware of the Syrian chronicle of what, of what is presented as Zacharias Rhetor. Um, that's a Syriac text, but it's translated from a Greek text. And in that Greek text, it does go into details about one particular copy that, that uh, had, had, had this passage. Also the uh, synopsis scripture sacred, I think I mentioned this earlier, that mentions the, the passage, although there are references out of sequence and the others that I, that I showed you before. So, are there any, any questions? I would just wonder, um, it seems to me when you look at this in terms of two competing explanatory models, and I, want, I want, I'd like your thoughts on this framing of the question. It seems that it would be a much more complicated and clunky um, narrative to construct of how exactly the PA got into all of these Greek manuscripts if in fact it was not originally there. It seems that if you, because you're going to have to explain either it got into all of these Greek manuscripts not having been there originally, or it got out of a few of these Greek manuscripts having been there originally. And it seems to me that the narrative that you've presented is just a much simpler and more parsimonious one than, than the only alternative. Well, yes, um, regarding the degree of simplicity, I think Chris, Chris Keith, uh, back, back in that meeting with uh, Maurice Robinson, he was trying to say that, well, this is a story that was written to show that Jesus knew how to write, even though it doesn't say what he wrote in the ground. And I think that if you were really going to make a story, to show that Jesus could write, you would say what he wrote. You wouldn't just say that he wrote something in the, in the ground. I mean, what was he writing? We don't really know because scripture doesn't say. Although patrician writers um, like Ambrose uh, do make proposals about what he wrote. Uh, sometimes it's related to something in Jeremiah, uh, sometimes not. But, um, in, but uh, Maurice Robinson pointed out and I think this was a, a very, very, very strong point. What kind of pre-standing composition begins with the words, and then everybody went home? Because that's how the story of the woman called in adultery, as we know it, begins in John 7.53. Uh, who begins the story saying, once upon a time, 
Everybody went home. <laughs> so, so you have to have this extra step of saying, oh, it was floating around out there like a butterfly. And then somebody worked on it a little bit and adjusted this being detail to make it to make it interlock with the text of John more smoothly. Well, where do we see that happen? Uh, that is uh, a very hypothetical point. And you, and, and the point you made that the idea that that Pentecost skipped this part of the text very early is also hypothetical, and that is a valid point. But I think that it is a strong infer inference, nevertheless, because you see. In, in this transmission line that if you have the passage suddenly going poof, and that copyist is making several copies like this, you can see how that would, would influence later copies. And also when it comes to how Chrysostom would use the text, he would comment on the text for Pentecost, which means he would use the same kind of kind of skipping that was committed to the lector. Right, right. Uh, so, I mean, you're, you're going to have some um, uh, hypotheticals either way. It's just a question of which hypotheticals are you going to go with. Um, so, um, I want to thank you for, for coming on here and for uh, walking through Mark 16 and John 8 in such detail. Uh, I'd, I'd love for some of my audience to um, put out uh, some of uh, their questions. Um, and when I've gathered a, a reasonable harvest of questions, perhaps uh, we could have you back on to, uh, to talk about some of those. Oh, yes, I'm not quite done. I would like to. Oh dig into the details of this footnote in, in the Christian Standard Bible a little bit more. Is there, a, is there a slide you want me to bring up? Uh, nope, nope. Okay. It refers to this coming that when the, when the story of the adulteress is, appears after John 7.37. That's another way of saying it appears before 7.37. All that has happened in, in the, the witnesses to this position all that's happened is the copyist of John is knows that his copy is going to be used by, by a lector. And so he's simply making the lector's job a little bit easier by saying, instead of having this jump ahead business inside the election for Pentecost, he's simply moving the, that, that extract before the Pentecost election. That's, that's all that's happening there. Uh, in the same manuscript, 225, that, that's being pointed out here, uh, part of John, John 13, uh, part of John 13 also is extracted and moved into the text of Matthew the same way, because that's, that's where it was used in, in an early election cycle. Um, when it says that the passage sometimes occurs after John 744, uh, that's not referring to Greek, Greek manuscripts. Uh, I don't think any Greek, Greek manuscripts have it after John 744. 
so the notes being a little bit mis misleading because the term manuscripts is usually refers to the Greek evidence, not to the virginal evidence. What's being referred to here is a, a few Georgian copies. And what has happened is when the Georgian text was revised and the Georgian reviser saw that it was referred to being in, in section 86, uh, they weren't sure where to put it. And so they, they just slapped it onto uh, section 86. And that's where you see it at John 744. Uh, regarding Luke, uh, Luke 21, 38, uh, going back to the series to, to the Minologian lectionary, when you see, uh, so there were some, some copies that had it at the end of Luke. If you have this lection at the end of, uh, excuse, excuse me, I sort of said the end of John, rather. You, you have this lection in family one at the end of John. Well, if you have making a copy to be used by, by lectors. In other words, those reading the, the text in the church churches. In family 13, um, you have this sort of text, a text that's been prepared with the lector in mind. And in the lectionary cycle, or the lecture cycle, before the story for Pelagius, on the eighth day, you had on the previous day the election for Saints Sergius and Bacchus. Uh, these were soldier saints with very many churches being named in their honor. Their election their to be read was earlier in John 21. And so in family 13, uh, the reason why the story for the adulteress has been placed in Luke, Luke 21 is because that was the most convenient place to have it follow up the story of for St. Sergius and Bacchus. Uh, St. Sergius and Bacchus's lector is earlier in Luke 20, 21. So what they've done is instead of having it at the end of the Gospel of John, like in family one, they would simply move it to follow uh, sequentially the, the story for St. Sergius and Bacchus. So Pelagius' lection follows Sergius and Bacchus chronologically during the year, and that's what is reflected in Family 13, to explain that little detail. And there you have all the transplants locations accounted for, and there are other others, but they can be accounted for very similarly. Um, if you don't go into the details, It'll, people tend to see the reference to the, this movement and think the floating butterfly theory has a chance of being true. But as I explained in the other video, um, no, it, it isn't valid at all. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think that the floating butterfly thing, it, it's almost not a theory at all. It, it's almost kind of just giving a name to, you know, a bizarre phenomenon which is supposed to have happened but the question at hand is really how does it get into the text at this specific point and i think that that's the advantage of your approach is uh, which is that you have um specific reasons why it makes sense that uh the the um pericope behaves in this way so um 
so thank you very much for sharing all this. Um, it's been fascinating. And I think um, uh, my audience, whether they agree or not, uh, appreciates the perspective, especially because it's, it's, it's not heard very often. I, I, I wasn't aware that there was a serious case to be made for Mark 16 or uh, John, John 8 until a few years ago. So it's, it's an important thing to, to get out there. I hope it spreads from wide. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you.